Want to make your own podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easy, then distribute it everywhere, and even earn money. All in one place for free. It's called Spotify for Podcasters. Here's how it works. Spotify for Podcasters lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then, you can distribute your podcast to Spotify, and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. Ever since I discovered Spotify for Podcasters, I feel like I have an outlet for the creativity and ideas I want to share with the world. I recommend you give it a try. We all have a voice, so share it with the world. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to spotify.com slash podcasters to get started today. This is their world, just as Satan is the prince of this world. We need to understand that everything that goes on in this world is part of what's in their control. So we have to really put on our critical analysis and our armor of God, and we have to start to question things and understand things so that we're not so easily deceived. From the time of Augustine and before, you you have Gnostic doctrine seeping in to the church. They have been affecting church doctrine throughout the ages, and when they got control of the seminary schools, they end up in a scenario where they're affecting whether or not the Bible should be interpreted interpretively, which is the polytheist way, or literally. And the accuracy is questioned within the church, within the Bible, in a lot of cases. The Bible is not taught in the whole kind of context that it ought to be within the churches today, so that they don't teach prehistory and they don't teach prophecy. The ministers and the priests aren't taught that in the seminary schools, and that's because they've been taken over by the Gnostics. So if we are indeed in the fig tree generation, just when the flock needs them the most, they are not going to prepare us for the end time. They're going to prepare us in a way that we could be easily deceived. Welcome to the Days of Noah podcast, where we talk all things biblical, supernatural, and strange. On this episode, we conclude our conversation with Gary Wayne, part two of The Counterfeit Eden and The Return to the Golden Age. In this section, we get into a little bit of the hierarchy of the bloodlines and secret societies. We talk C.S. Lewis and Tolkien, who were actually... Uh, Freemasons, they were higher than a Rosicrucian. We talk Gnosticism and how that has affected the church, uh, affecting what is taught by the training that our pastors and priests are given at seminaries. Ultimately, it's a watering down of the Bible, not teaching it properly in its full context, and so we're not able to understand what we need to for the end times. And then we also talk about understanding who or what is Babylon in the book of Revelation, where God says, come out of her. And guys, if you could just take a moment right now, pause the episode and leave us a five-star review on your favorite podcast platform, uh, Apple especially, because it really does help to uh, push the show out to more people to be able to see it, to be able to find it. And we really want to grow this audience in order that these important topics can be heard, can be discussed. With that, let's conclude our conversation with Gary Wayne.
Well, you get a Eden type of story in the Sumerian texts. Um, but again, it has this sort of polytheism slant. And so it would be um, a counterfeit of the Eden one. And it would be in a place different than in Eden. So, um, and, you know, after Adam and Eve are ostracized from Eden, there are two cherubim that are put at the gates to guard it. Nobody's getting into it. And then the flood is going to destroy the Eden garden, right? So that doesn't mean they're not operating outside the garden um, with their, their civilizations and things like that, but understand they're going to try and counterfeit everything just as you have an antichrist as a counterfeit Messiah, right? That's just what they do. And so um, when you look at uh, Atlantis as being a new Eden, that's what they're trying to create. So if you look at New Age doctrine, they look at this New Age as being a new Eden. It's their allegory for the first time. And it's this allegory from a polytheist slant that was an age of plenty. So just as Eden was an age of plenty, so was the antediluvian world where, you know, crops grew easily. There wasn't disease. You lived to be great ages, all those sorts of things. And that's what they're offering in the new Eden in their new millennium. So that's where you get that sort of um, allegorical, you know, connotation to it. And that... Um, this this Eden that is 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 being talked about as as the new Atlantis again it will be a time of a golden age it will be a time of plenty going forward and then there was another comparative that you had in there I think it was you said he was Pedersen was talking about Atlantis uh, Gil, and somewhere Gilgal, else Gilgal oh, Gilgal Gilgamesh. Raphaim yeah oh Gilgal Raphaim okay so you could make an argument that. Um, Gilgal Raphaim, which has a dating of 3000 to 3500 3, BC at the foot of Mount Hermon, uh, might be just outside of the Eden gates because that's the mountain that the angels swore their oath before their flood of Harem Anathema. And that Gilgal Raphaim, meaning the, the wheel of the giants or the wheel of the Raphaim, um, or the wheel of the spirits, disembodied spirits. Again, you have all of that sort of wrapped in there. It has, you know, like 100 portals that we had talked about. So I think that, uh, you know, certainly after the flood, it was a, it was a land of plenty. And so uh, it had great crops and things like that. And that's part of what was being reported in the, in, in the scouts report. And that was sort of outside the land of Israel as well. Um, and in the land of giants, um, for the, for the most part, but, uh, but is it, you know, could it be, um, could it be Eden? It could be the old Eden because Eden could have included that. And then after, you know, the ostracization of Adam and Eve, you have the guards, the gates on the garden and, Maybe the angels, they, you know, they were able to go to Mount Hermon to renew that oath, to, to do the oath and then went down and, and create. Or maybe the garden's located a little bit separate, but it just seems that it, from the Genesis description, it runs from the Nile to the Euphrates. So I think it's just an allegory overlay more than anything. Um, but I was just sort of saying if I wanted to make a sort of factual case as to how that could be, but then you start to kind of get into some, some conundrums. Um, and that seems to me that that was probably a holy mountain um, before it was perverted as well with, with the oath. Wow. Yeah, that's interesting. All right. So switching gears a little bit to kind of the hierarchy of the bloodlines. So one thing that uh, Fritz Springmeier mentioned was over top of Illuminati. And you alluded to this on our last talk that Illuminati is, you know, they're up there, but they're not, they're not at the top. Um, he mentions the triads or triad. Are you familiar with that at all? And if not, no problem, but maybe you can kind of from your understanding, break down kind of this hierarchy of bloodlines. 
So I'm presuming when he talks about the triads, he's talking about the Chinese secret society. And that's a mafioso secret society and sort of used equivalent to what the mafia would be here. Of course, it has a godfather at, uh, that sits at the table in the West. You have a bloodline that operates it from the Xi and the Li um, bloodlines out of China. And even as they branch all over the world, the triads will still have a bloodline representative on those uh, secret societies and that they are used um, more from a pulls apart perspective to control society. And they do business with each other because they're all working for the same goal and they're all initiatory organizations. So the bloodlines of the Chinese, uh, of the Chinese dynasties goes back to the Sha dynasty. That's uh, the original one that's X. I-A as it's spelt, pronounced Sha. And the Western bloodline is the Xi bloodlines, Z or X-I, which Xi, president of China, um, comes out of. And the secret societies, and they have many, like the, the Green Lotus, the Red Dragon, they have just hundreds of secret societies because it's, it's part of the same bloodline hierarchy as in the West. They were considered equals to Masonic societies in the West who are also operated by bloodlines. Now, the Illuminati is in the Thelemic tree uh, that they like to call it, and that's an evergreen tree of their hierarchy of secret societies, evergreen cedar tree from Mount Hermon, that has its roots that go into the earth into Hades where they receive their power from. And the tree that goes up is the hierarchical order with the 13 families at the top. The 13 families, uh, there's a lot of groups of 13 families that people like to use. It's hard to know. I put 13 in my book that will be different than what others. And that's kind of my speculation from the writings of the secret societies, but there's 13 Western European bloodlines. And you have to, you have to limit it to that because there's bloodlines all over the world, just as we talked about with the G bloodline. So they, they have their own set. And I understand they have uh, a similar hierarchy and there might be 13 families from around the world that sit on a separate assembly of a Datanu, for example, uh, from the past. And so when we, if we start to mix in American bloodline families, let's say like the DuPonts or the Rockefellers or, or the war, not the Warburgs or the Morgans, the Carnegie's, that's when you start mixing things up. They are junior offshoots, junior bloodlines that were sponsored. It's the Rothschilds, who again is a junior offshoot, who funded the American bloodlines, and they're called pseudo-blue bloods. Um, and they're trying to intermarry uh, through their loyalties, not only for their being put into business, but they want to, and they do in the, uh, the agenda of the European families, they, in return, they'll have their children intermarry through the generations with pure bloodlines, and they'll have a bigger role. And so the Illuminati is way below the 13 families. So you start at the Masons, at the Freemasons being at the lower level, and then you go up to the Illuminati. Um, so first level of Masonry is third degree in the old system, which is New York, right? Um, and the same three degrees that's in mystical religions. Uh, the Scottish Rite comes out in the, 13, in the 1800s, and it's just taking those 11 and splitting them into levels of three with each 11 degrees. So you get 33rd degree to be an adept. And then, um, so we'll use the old one because it's just simpler. So th three degrees as an adept. So the Illuminati are going to be at least fifth degree bloodline because you have to be a bloodline of some sort to be in these secret societies. But the lower you are, the lower your bloodline is. And you're trying to work your way up the tree. So to be a what they would call a uh, 
in layman's term, a regional manager of Masonic lodges, you would have to be fifth degree in the old system. And an Illuminati starts at the third degree and would be in that sort of range. And so the Rosicrucians would be above the Illuminati. And it's at that group where you have a mix of pure bloods with the ones that are rising up through the lower levels. And masonry is kind of used to reach out to get people of the bloodlines and of the genes into the Masonic organization, then decide whether or not they're worthy enough to go up to be adept and maybe higher. So the Rosicrucians are that that threshold organization where you have pure bloods represented at the top of the Rosicrucian society. And then above that is you have the council or the committee of 300 families. And above that you have the council of 33 families. And then above that you have the 13 families. And then around this tree, as in a cedar tree from the cedar forest, you have these branches that go up in a, in a higher order back to the trunk and they connect into these trunk organizations. So each of those trunk organizations has all of these other groups that report into them and do certain agendas. So like the Illuminati would be responsible for two branches, just the name of a couple uh, to show you that they do have importance is that Bohemian Grove is Illuminati and Skull and Bones is, but, but notice this is all in North America, right? It's not in Europe. So that if you move up to the committee of 300, you have like the Bilderbergers that bring in the new money, like the people like Bill Gates, and they get their marching orders once a year. And it's the Royales that are operating as the senior part into the rising money, wealthy juniors up. They, you know, that's report to them and they just get their, their marching orders. So Rosicrucians, you know, they would, uh, you know, they look after things like maintaining the, um, the history and the religion and sort of that ancient culture. So they, they look after, you know, the, the arts and they're, they're uh, looking after the hierarchy of the polytheist religions and they look after, you know, entertainment, you know, so they provide the knowledge to people who are further their, furthering their agenda. That's who Hollywood gets all their information from, right? Uh, it comes from them. And a good example would be is that Walt Disney is th he's thought to be a Freemason, but he's actually higher than that. He's Rosicrucian. He rose up to that. And you look at all of his entertainment, it's just keeping that ancient history alive and their belief system alive. Or uh, you have two people that were part of a Rosicrucian society called the Golden Dawn, and one of their junior offshoots was a Inkling Society that was a writer's secret society on a university, which is, again, their history, right? And you have secret initiatory yeah. groups always in the universities. Um, and that was uh, called the Inklings, and they had two famous ones in there that I'll name, and there's many more. I think I know uh, what you're going to say. Yeah, Lewis and Tolkien. That's right. And that's where they learned their craft. But people say, well, they couldn't have been part of a Rosicrucian society because they weren't Freemasons. Well, if you do a dive, and I have a six-part series on them, and in the five and six, I dive into their bloodlines, they are royales. Ooh. They were adepts before adulthood. Wow. And that's why they were at Oxford. That's why they were in a Rosicrucian society. They call those 32nd degree adepts. So if you hear that term, either they don't know what they're talking about or they're a pure blood. And so they, they can take a title somewhere between 25 and 30 years old as adept. So they were already above Rosicrucian. They're just there to learn the craft, to write the stories of the knowledge they already knew. And so Francis Bacon was in the same sort of ideology. He had two famous writing societies, one called the Knights of the Helmet, and the other one was the Spearshaker Society, if, and if that sounds 
eerily close to Shakespeare, you would be correct. Oh. And it's named and it's and it's named after Apollo and Athena, who were patron of the arts in the Greek mythology, and they had a spear that they would that she would shake. Um and wow. uh, they use that to develop, you know, like great writings like Shakespeare. Uh, again, to have the genealogies and the history kept alive. They use that to create the modern language that became the King James Version language for the Bible for the adept, bloodline, mighty King James. <laughs> wow. So, so what are we to think of of Lewis and uh, Tolkien and their writings? I mean, they're held up in quite high esteem in Christian circles, and yes, they are. You know, I, I, I'm reading Narnia to my, to my child. So, how should we yeah. think of those things as long as we're on the topic? Yeah, and you're reading things about satires. Satires, I know. Gods, I know. And portals. And so there's way too much knowledge in there in terms of their history and their belief system. And they say they were Christians, uh, but they've never renounced their writings. Um, and you have like this one, and they call the, uh, the hero in uh, their fairy tales because they write fairy tales again it's written all over what they do the fairy bloodline the fairy tuatha de danan uh in a fairy tale you have a happily ever after ending called the eucatastrophe that they like to use as their term and that's where you have this recreated sort of ending so the hero doesn't have to meet his true destiny and so he's saved from that tragic death, but that's actually not what happened to him. Um, they called, both of them called the Bible a fairy tale. Really? And, and in that, that this understanding... This is recorded somewhere that they said yeah, this? I've, I've, yeah, yeah. I've got, I've got the uh, footnotes in my, uh, in my documents if people get that. Oh and that uh, you hear this sort of doctrine that's out there by the Gnostics is, is that um, Jesus never really resurrected. He didn't die on the cross. He's immortal and he was a teacher, but it's the principle of what he's talking about moving into Godhood that, that, uh, that you need to hold on to, but you know, he didn't die and wasn't resurrected. And the only sign and backup that they say for that, that he gave that generation was the sign of Jonah where Jonah was three days and three nights in the in the belly of the whale, and Jesus would show that sign as when he was being crucified. Then they go on to say, and this is their standard tactic, is, is, well, you don't believe Jonah was really in the belly of the whale for three days or three nights. It's just a fable. Well, if that's just a fable, and that's the only sign that he provided, so it's that fairy tale, you catastrophe. And so Jesus wasn't resurrected because it's a you catastrophe and you have to be an adept to understand what's really written in the Bible because it has to be used, read through the interpretive approach. So they do lots of things like that. But the big thing is, is, is they are not teaching Christian history in those stories and they've never renounced them and they talk in languages like a Gnostic. And I, you know, just, and again, people have their eyes open. I get people who get pretty, pretty upset when I say this and I send them the documents and I don't hear back from them because it's just, it just makes your eyes bug out. Yeah. And it's not that they weren't great writers because they were, and they can be polytheist if they want, but we ought to be careful um, as to who we believe and what they believe and what they're leading us to believe. So um, all I would suggest to people who are reading those to their children is, is to do it in a way that they have a proper understanding. Yes. Uh, I, the story. I, I had that to... up to parents. Yes, I had to give a disclaimer in the section that we're in on, I think we're on the third or fourth book, uh, The Dawn Treader, and um, where Lucy is, <laughs> there's these invisible people, okay, and and she's instructed that, they, that, well, they tell, the invisible people tell her, the only way that uh, uh, 
we're not going to kill you is if you go to this book of magic and read this spell to help us be visible again. And I had to give my daughter that disclaimer, like, okay, you know, timeout. We would, we would never consult a book of magic as a Christian and think that this is a good thing or take our advice from, you know, some other creature. And it's just, yeah. And you're, you're right. And I think of, uh, you know, Ravi Zacharias and all that Let has me, come out since he died. Like yeah, we're, we yeah. have to be careful about, yeah, who we're following and not, not create these giants of the faith. Like they can do no wrong. Yeah, and look what fruits that they bear. I mean, that right. should tell everybody. But here's here's an interesting thing. So in the New Age, in the religion of the secret societies and the bloodlines, is that they believe in something called an incarnation. And an incarnation is like what Buddha received from Vishnu. So Vishnu is the avatar. And Buddha, who receives the spirit of Vishnu, is the avatara. And in that relationship, it's it's not like possession. It's more like a symbiotic relationship. And they add like wisdom or power. And that's where the wisdom of Buddha came along. Buddha is thought of in that belief system as many sent on the way that they would put Jesus in the same sort of level at. And so he's an incarnation of a god. They just don't say tell you which god. And so in the Narnia tales, you have a character named Aslan. And Aslan is this lion messiah type figure as he would be depicted as Jesus would be depicted as Lewis states on another planet. And he's incarnated. That's his language. Well, that's very interesting in the Vedas again, where this avatar, avatar concept comes from, you have another god named Shiva. That's the destroyer god, likely the equivalent to Abad Napoleon or Azazel out of the book of Enoch. And Shiva incarnates many times as well, not as many times as Vishnu, but one time does into a person named Narashima, who's depicted as a lion. So he's talking about an incarnation with a lion and putting that into a fairy tale as Jesus would incarnate. Jesus does not incarnate. Right. This is, he is not going into a host body. He was not created into a host body. The body was created for him by the Holy Spirit as his oiketarian, his soul and his body. And then he entered into that so that he could interact in the physical world. And Antichrist will be an incarnation right. in the new age as a Christ consciousness. Wow. So it, so tell me he hasn't prepared people for that concept. Oh my goodness. And, <clears throat> and yet it's passed off as allegory, not incarnation, right? Yep. Yeah. Yes. Well, yes. as long as we're, <laughs> we're slaying some giants here and busting some myths, maybe, um, I had this, I had this in my notes to ask you because you mentioned it in uh, at least a paragraph or two in your book about Augustine and, uh, and the Manichaean Gnostic that he was for 10 years. Um, and now I should disclaim, and if people have listened to all of our episodes, you've heard me give at least a short rant on this uh, once or twice, uh, because it's where it's the origin of where we get in Christianity, or at least the sect of Reformed, uh, this idea of God Gnostically determining salvation. And he got that, in my opinion, from Ken Wilson's work on that. Um, he got that from his Manichaean Gnosticism. So you, you, call, you called him kind of a murky bishop, of a dubious order. <laughs> Can you unpack a little bit about <laughs> Manichaean Gnosticism and, and Augustine? So, so in, in the time of, and there's two Augustine, so one has to be careful. Oh, okay. But, and the one that we're talking about, and then they're both, they live a couple hundred years apart, but oh, yes. they're part of the Augustine order. Um, but they're 
part of what is understood as the Celtic Christian branch that is converted in the time of King Arthur, that Merlin is writing about that his time is over and this new religion is going to be coming. And they go underground into the Catholic Church. Gnostics as a whole and Manichaeans uh, as a whole mold into the church for protection. So they got control over the um, Roman collegia, um, the builder guilds, and they had the knowledge to build the great temples that they were handed down in their belief system that goes back to the uh, Pythagoras schools and their sort of rendering of that history and back to the Dionysian builders that built all of the post-Diluvian temples and palaces and who received that knowledge from the Enochian mysticism that built the great pyramids before the flood. And so they started to build the churches for uh, the Catholic Church. And this is, these are Gnostic orders that are part of the Catholic Church. So the Augustines is a Gnostic order. The uh, Cistercians are a Gnostic order. And these are the same organizations that are going to sponsor the Knights Templar and are going to bring knowledge from Jerusalem that is going to bring on the Gothic uh, technology for the Gothic, great Gothic uh, cathedrals that were built in Europe. So we, we need to understand that there were many of these Gnostic organizations that were molded into Catholicism and Augustine would have been one of them. And, you know, and part of that builder sort of Heritage comes from the Manichaeans who went underground in, in, in Rome, along with Mithraism and other uh, polytheist groups that he, that he was part of. And what's also interesting is this monastic order is built on the Essenic order uh, that was in the Dead Sea area and also with locations throughout Israel. And that they were polytheists. They took their religion from the religion that Moses brought, that they said he learned at Heliopolis, and that they protected the names of their fallen angels that they worshipped even on to death. And I have a great document on the Essenes, if people want, that goes further and is more detailed for Christians in terms of historical and Christian fathers that substantiate what, what I'm saying. Okay. So this is, again a long lineage of these monastic orders that ends up in the Catholic Church that are going to create the Knights Templar that are going to be taken down in 1307. And after that split, you're going to have the creation of decentralized organizations so they can't so easily be taken down. And that's where you get the Rosicrucians, the Illuminati, uh, the Freemasonry organizations. You get the Rothschilds to replace the banking arm uh, that the Templars held within the church. You're going to create the Jesuits to mold into uh, the Roman church to get control of the banking and the education, just as the Royal Society is created. Uh, through Freemasons and Rosicrucians to get a hold of science and education outside of the of the church. And when we talk about uh, all of the things that happen in in the world, we have to understand that we we're awash. We're like an island in the Sea of Gentiles, just as Israel was. This is their world. Just as Satan is the prince of this world for a time, and just as they control the council of gods on this earth for a time, and just as they control the ruling hierarchy for a time, we need to understand that we have to understand that everything that goes on in this world is part of what's in their control. So we have to really put on our critical analysis and our armor of God. And we have to start to question things and understand things so that we're not so easily deceived. And even with church doctrine, you have, from the time of Augustine and before, you, you have Gnostic doctrine seeping in uh, to the church. You know, St. Bernard, who was the... Um, 
He was the second most powerful person next to the Pope at the time of the creation of the Knights Templar. He's the one who carried the day in the argument and then oversaw the Templars and created them with an initiatory organization within the church that had them venerate Mary Magdalene in their Gnostic belief system as the wife of Jesus who produced offspring and had them dedicate all the Gothic all the Gothic uh, churches that they built. So we need to understand that they have been affecting church doctrine and understanding throughout the ages. And when they got control of the seminary schools in the Catholic Church through the Jesuits and through uh, moles that went into the Protestant seminary schools, they end up in a scenario where they're affecting whether or not the the Bible should be interpreted interpretively, which is the polytheist way, or literally. And the accuracy is questioned within the church, within the Bible, in a lot of cases. And that the Bible is not taught in the whole kind of context that it ought to be within the churches today, so that they teach some of the good things that they could probably take most of it over to a polytheist religion, but they don't teach prehistory and they don't teach prophecy. And that's because the ministers and the priests aren't taught that in the seminary schools, and that's because they've been taken over by the Gnostics. So if we are indeed in the fig tree generation, then just when the flock needs them the most, they are not going to prepare us for the end time. And that they're going to prepare us in a way that we could be easily deceived. And I have a lot of people even to this day who come and say, if I ask a question about prehistory or prophecy, uh, and I don't accept the standard answer and ask another question, they, t they tell me to stop asking questions, and if they persist, they get told to leave the church. Oh. We're supposed to question what's in the Bible and question our leaders. We're supposed to search the Bible out. We're supposed to be Bereans, and I encourage people to be contrarians so that you're, you are able to put on the full armor of God because you'll understand what happened in prehistory is real. What that terminology or that, I, that the idiom that we talked about that's in the book of Ecclesiastics, that if we understand that nothing is new under the sun and what was will be again, we understand that the end time will be like the days of Noah. And we need to understand that to help understand the full context of end time prophecy we're going to be better prepared and we're going to be better prepared even without the church. And we can then communicate, hopefully in a thought provoking and logical way, things that people may want to consider that's happening if we are in the fig tree generation. And I think that we are, that um, will bring them to want to learn more and maybe even bring them back into the fold of Christianity and accepting Jesus as, as their redeemer. But we want to be careful and we don't want to get ahead of ourselves on chronology and things like that. But we need to be helping others and we need to do that by helping ourselves first so that we can better understand the end time. And so we can look at a lot of things that are talked about in polytheism and in Christianity, and in the Bible, and start to connect some dots here. And one of the big things that we need to understand, not only is what what is the fig tree generation, and when does that start, and what does the fig tree mean, not only the days of Noah, but understanding the birth sorrows, because if we're in that last generation, we ought to be seeing pestilence, earthquakes, wars and rumors of war and famine, and they ought to be getting stronger as we see this globalist movement or the new Babel syndrome or what they're trying to do in the Deluvian Epoch by creating the Atlantis. And I think that in itself 
is showing that we're either in the fig tree generation or we're on the verge of being in the fig tree generation. And also understanding that could be 40 years, it could be 70 years or 120 years. But the point I was trying to make was the deceptions, the delusions, the counterfeits that are going to happen is greater than we can imagine, even if we have our eyes open to a certain degree. We can't imagine what's coming. And it will be so great that will culminate with the great delusion, as it's talked about in, in the book of Thessalonians, and with people accepting Antichrist as the Messiah, it will be so great that even the elect would be deceived if that were possible. And Jesus very clearly provides us that warning in Matthew 24 and Mark 13. And so there's a time that we're going to be saved out of. But that doesn't mean we're not going to go through tribulation. And it's not meaning that we're not going to have to testify and be prepared to suffer through tribulation. So the two things that we're going to be promised to be saved from is the time of the wrath and the time of the trial. And so we need to understand that. So the wrath is the wrath bulls, and it's in the year of the Lord's wrath, and it's not tribulation. There are two different words. You have wrath that comes from, in the New Testament, from orge and thumus, and thalipses is the word for tribulation. And they're used for different purposes. We're told as Christians we're going to go through tribulations, but we're going to be saved from the wrath. That's the wrath bulls. And when you fold in uh, the Old Testament, prophecies it's the year of the lord's wrath after the year of the lord's favor so those wrath bowls will be poured out in the last year so we're saved from that and then we're told we're going to be saved from the hour of trial because of that great deception that great delusion that we would be deceived and that hour is a very specific word that god that jesus uses for the hour that he's coming back that nobody knows right so there's that's we know that uh, Revelation is the testimony of Jesus. So everything should match up perfectly with what Jesus said, because it's his testimony, just as the disciples wrote down with the help of the Holy Spirit, what Jesus said in Matthew 24, 13, Luke 17 and 21. So this is the hour we need to be aware of. And that hour happens after three and a half years in Revelation 11 just before the start of the seventh trumpet with the killing of the two witnesses uh, by the one who comes up out of the abyss. This is the same hour, and this is, the, this is typical the way the Bible works. It's perfectly consistent. This is the hour that the ten kings, Revelation 17, hand their power over to Antichrist. So again, we're talking about the midpoint of the last seven years. This is the same hour that Revelation 14 says is the time of the destruction of Babylon. And then you get the summary of the last three and a half years, starting at about Revelation 14, 8 or 9, after the final gospel has been preached by the angel. Just as in Revelation 18, Babylon is destroyed in an hour. Babylon has to be destroyed so that Antichrist and, and, and the kings hand over their power to destroy Babylon because they hate Babylon. And Babylon has to be destroyed so that Antichrist can set up his own religion that false prophet is working to do, a religion that his fathers didn't know as the book of Daniel talks about. This is at the midpoint of the last seven years, does the abomination at the midpoint of the seven years, crowns himself in the temple at the midpoint of the last seven years, and then introduces the mark of the beast. That's what we're going to be saved from. That's the trial that we will be saved from. That's the temptation that we will be saved from because, in my opinion, the delusion is that unimaginable. It will deceive the elect. So the Ten Kings in Atlantis, is that a parallel again to the Ten Kings in Revelation? 
it's why we need to understand polytheism. So when they're setting up the new age and the new Atlantis, and we're told there's going to be 10 kings, and there was 10 kings in Atlantis, that's why it's important. And so those 10 kings, um, you know, they're going to come about as part of the seventh empire, and it's going to take Babylon to uh, bring that all together. But they are, you know, 10 kings that belong to uh, the the sixth empire. Like they rise out of the ashes of, of that empire. And so we should be aware then that the Club of Rome, who answers into the Committee of 300 in that Thelemic tree that we talked about, and were created in the 1960s. And there's a junior order of newer money, like Pierre Trudeau, for example, was a member as a junior order. And then you have the higher order of, of purebloods. They divided the world into 10 groups that they want to set the empire up with. The United Nations has the world set up into 10 different groups. The Bible says the end-time empire will be 10 different kings and empires. So you're seeing these in the birth pangs, if we're going through that, in the sorrows, that shuffling for position right now, where you have a bloodline like Xi in power, who's going to be creating his empire. You have Putin, who believes he's part of the Putyanin bloodline of Kiev, uh, from the original giants who set up the original czars, and the Romanovs were a junior offshoot of the Putyanin. And I won't go into the whole Putin connection there on the bloodlines, but understand he believes he's a bloodline of the of the royals, and he's trying to set up his. And you're going to see other groups start to move, and there will be wars and rumors of wars that sort of bring this about. So you're going to have to have catastrophes to bring about this full solution and the creation of Babylon. And I understand world government and I understand world religion is a significant speed bump to get over to be in the end time. So that's why we don't want to get ahead of the chronology. Um, but if we are in the end time, that means one specific generation that Jesus laid out as the fig tree generation and that uh, all of those things would be fulfilled in that generation. And by implication, all of those things as his testimony in the book of Revelation in one generation. Wow, that's incredible. Um, okay, so real quick on uh, Babylon and, you know, get out of her. <laughs> Revelation says it's falling. Um, I, I forget if it was in your book that you were talking about connection to Rome, but then I had another guest who is talking about that as the USA. Uh, what's your opinion on the USA being Babylon, yes or no? And then then we can kind of segue into what I was going to ask you. Well, Babylon is many things. We have to understand it as more than just one thing. Uh, but we do know it's a city. And because the book of Revelation talks about that several times in Revelation 17, Revelation 14, and Revelation 18 says it like eight or nine times. So it's a city. And so then the question is, is what city? So if it's just a city, then it's not the United States. But it could be, as some people say, New York City. Or it could be Constantinople, which is a city that has seven hills as well. Um, I, I tend to think it's probably Rome. And uh, I look at it as at the time of the writing of the book of Revelation, um, John of Patmos was very familiar with Roman history and Roman mythology. And Seven Hills were the beginning of the Roman Empire. And Palatine Hill is the capital of that hill. And as we talked about, that's where the Sibylline prophecies uh, were known from, and Vatican Hill is a, is a branch of that. And in the book of Revelation, it talks about um, the seven the seven heads are seven kings and seven mountains. It's both, right? So we have to read them in that way. And so Rome, as you take that back 
and as Babylon and the descriptions of the word of Babylon are described and, and understood in the Greek is known as the enemy of Christianity and the seat of idolatry. So again, it's sort of pushing in that sort of direction. Whether it's Rome or not, I think it's probably the best location. And in my in my new book, um, I go through this in in, in specific detail um, on positioning it in, into Rome as the best bet. But it's more than a city; it's also a universal religion, as it's talked about in Revelation 17, right? And it sits on many waters. And as a powerful universal religion, it has its false prophets that are going to bring itself about, and that's going to be part of the catastrophes. And as a universal religion, it has such immense power that it is also a geopolitical organization. So that she rides the beast of empires. She rides the end time ten kings, holds the reins, controls them, and they grow jealous of her. So she is part of the ancient, what was, will be again, organizational structure of Enochian mysticism. Just as Mystery Babylon is Mysterian in Greek and means an initiatory language. And all the language is talking about this daughter of Babylon religion. But this is the mother religion come back. She's the mother of harlots. And it is also a business organization, an economic organization that grows rich. So it will control all of the transactions. It will actually set up the complete beast system in place as being part of the hierarchy of the beast empires that comes out of the sea as a leviathan with multiple heads that the dragon receives its power from, not only from Satan as a dragon, as it's talked about in Second Thessalonians, but from the beast empires and the ten kings who hand their power over to Antichrist as the ones who as the one who once was, now is not, but comes up from the abyss and is the eighth empire. So that's the end of that tenth seventh empire and a start of a new religion and a new new uh, empire and institutes the beast system complete with the mark at the behest of the false prophet who's doing great great miracles for him. So we need to understand Babylon in all of those contexts and that it's going to be the center of the world. And do I think that the U.S. will have a, a large role? Absolutely. It's going to be a major part and part of one of those 10 kings, whether it's leading it or perhaps England is leading it. Um, it's hard to know how that's going to set up, but if you follow through on bloodlines and want to be antichrist figures, then bloodlines are going to play a role in, I think, the uh, the King James original envisioned empire. Okay. So, so in that sense, uh, Babylon is more of when God's saying, come out of her, it's not like get out of the U.S. or get out of Rome necessarily. It's more get out of this false idolatrous counterfeit system and and it's deception yeah, leave jezebel the mother as it's leave jezebel absolutely who's the false prophetess um and that uh it's the warning that sort of announced is that destruction's coming to babylon and you don't want to be part of that right yes that makes that makes a lot of sense, and and as many things in the Bible, there's there's multiple layers of meanings uh, beyond just the face value, right? So, all right, here's well, what, and if yeah. you look at the uh, Book of Revelation, and I was just going to say on yep. the seven churches, you can get uh, a timeline of the church and coming out of Babylon. It's it's set up like a dual prophecy, and people probably aren't familiar when I talk about a dual prophecy, but. I explain it in the next book that'll be out in November, Genesis 6 Conspiracy Part 2. Ah, yes. I'll, I'll give the sub subtitle on my plug right now. Uh, how uh, understanding prehistory and giants helps to define end time prophecy. Um, you, you, and I have a document on this part on the churches if people want to get a hold of me. Okay. Um, it's a dual prophecy because it talks about things in prehistory that you have to understand for concept. So you're getting like the throne room, you're getting things that didn't happen in the time of the seven churches that uh, 
John delivered the letter back to after his vision. Mm -hmm. And you have things that were fulfilled then, uh, and you need the understanding of prehistory, which you get in the details before you get into the first seal opening. And then you have events that don't happen at that time. So one of those events is that I'll save you from the time of temptation or the time of trial, depending on which translation that you're reading. That's specifically for that end time church. And 10 days of tribulation is another one, just to give a hint. So there's not just the three and a half years of the great tribulation, which is not the tribulation of the saints that Revelation 7 talks about. That's the time uh, that leads into the time of the great wrath. And it's the same time frame after the midpoint that is the Hebrew word Sarah, when Michael stands, which is the time of Jacob's trouble, <laughs> trouble, Sarah, and that Jacob is going to be saved of at the time of the second exodus, which happens in the year of the Lord's favor. <laughs> and book of Luke and Isaiah talks about before uh, the year of the Lord's wrath. And so you have three years of tribulation even before the, the start of the last seven years. Because when you overlay the chronology or the understanding of a, of a week of years and a day, you have 10 years as you connect Daniel, you know, Matthew and, and um, the book of Revelation up. And so during the time of the rise of Babylon is tribulation. Then you have the great tribulation of the saints. That is the Greek word thalipses again. And these are the ones that are told to, uh, in Revelation 6, those who died for the testimony of Jesus. So after the death of Jesus till now, the first fruits, part of the first fruits, are told to wait for. And uh, we get told of this tribulation in Matthew 24 in the time of affliction. And that uh, thalipses is the Greek word for affliction in Matthew 24. Now, some people say, well, it's the translators that distinguish the, you know, the tribulation from affliction, because it can mean trouble, it can mean affliction, it can mean persecution, it all depends on the application. Except for in Matthew 24, 21, where it talks about the great tribulation, the translators in Mark 13, 19 on the cognate form, and the tribulation not seen since the beginning of creation, as both accounts discuss, Mark uses the word affliction, not tribulation, in the King James Version, and that word goes back to Thalipses as well. It just hasn't been translated consistently. Hmm. So we're going to go through tribulation, and we're told to get into heaven we're going to have to go through tribulation. Yes, yes, the tribulation but not the wrath is what you're saying. Is that correct? Yes, and saved from the hour of temptation. All right. Wow. And and this is a really yep. yep. This is a really good segue, Gary, because um I always say this, we'd love to have you back and um I I do want to get into eschatology and I appreciate how much you've shared with us even now, but to to devote a whole episode or two to to eschatology um in your understanding would be fantastic. And along those lines, here's my, here's my hypothetical. So Sure. The first yep. question, and I'll say this, but then I'll ask the second part so you can kind of put them together, is do you think Satan actually believes he has a chance to win? And, or is he just trying to go, you know, burn the house down? He, he knows his fate is sealed. He's read Revelation. He knows it better than we do. He knows about the lake of fire. So does he actually think he can win? And if so... uh this is my hypothetical that I thought of a while ago. Why doesn't he try to beat God on a technicality, similar to how he tried to pollute the human genome, you know, in Genesis 6? You know, once once God kind of laid some of his cards on the table and said, there's going to be this uh, son of or seed of the woman who's going to crush your head, and Satan figured it out. Okay, that's that's a human line. I'm going to pollute the human line. So he tries to beat God on a technicality, right? So why doesn't Satan, knowing Revelation, just go, 
all right, uh, Rosicutians, Illuminati, you know, all, all these groups right up to the top where they're probably not even human. Just tell them, don't, don't fulfill it. Don't do the one world government. Don't do the one world religion. And I understand everything we've been talking about is the opposite of that, talking about getting back to the golden age. But couldn't he just win by a technicality and just keep things going as they are, status quo? There's plenty of evil going around right now. Why Why bring it to a head unless he actually thinks he can win? Yeah, very, very good question. So, you know, Satan was created by God and the word by um, implication in terms of uh, John 1 and Colossians 1. So he knew God intimately, and he still rebelled. All the angels knew God intimately, and they still rebelled. Uh, but they don't know everything that God knows. That's the first thing to remember. Um, but they chose to rebel anyways. I don't think they thought they could ever defeat God. I think they wanted to be in their own realm and be like God without the oversight of God. And so they've been trying to win the earth as that realm which Satan is the prince over right now and wants to extend that sort of eternally. He knew right from the resurrection that humankind would be raised into heaven because Jesus had been resurrected. So he knew the game was over from the big play from there. So now he's only left with a couple of things he can do. One is, is to destroy as many as he can and make as many as he possibly can not be resurrected. And two is, is can he win on a technicality, not win the war, but win perhaps a realm? And we saw that sort of allegory in the movie Doctor Strange where they're fighting for the earth ah. with all these polytheist religions and magic and alchemy against the dark lord of the universe to win this treaty to just run the earth. You know, ideally, that's about all that he can hope for and not go to the lake of fire that has been promised uh, by Jesus in, math, in the book of Matthew. And so he could do, went on a technicality uh, only in one way because he can't prevent things from happening. He's, the only way he can have his A rebellion and be lord over it is to lead the rebellion and have a technicality. But it's the technicality that's probably the biggest part. So the thing that they can do is try to change the times. And in the book of Daniel, it says that Antichrist will try and change the times. Whatever that means, that would be a technicality. So the first thing is you have to do, because Jesus is going to come at a set time that God has already laid out. So he has to do the deception and change the times before that happens. So at some point in time, he has to have Antichrist in power to change those times. Some way, somehow, and for whatever reasons, uh, and that's what is going to be being played out. And so I don't know whether that means they can go back in time to change things or they just brought about the the end time in terms of Antichrist coming to power or what's going to happen um, at a time not ordained by God. That would be the only technicality that he could win on because God already knows what's at the end. He already knows everything Satan's going to do because he's Alpha Omega, and he's just letting him play out all of those options. So it might be desperation to try and do that, but he already knows what he's going to do. Yeah. It, you know, it, it, what your answer is, is excellent in, in that it's, every time I ask this, I get a different answer, which is what I love about the, the, this hypothetical, because that's what I want to get, because I'm only seeing it from my point of view. But I love your answer because it reminds me of that movie Minority Report where it's, you know, um, the Tom Cruise character, uh, uh, John Anderton, yep. uh, which, by the way, <laughs> is uh, is we're, we're having uh, um, I'll just say this real quick. We're having uh, Tom Althaus, who is the original creator of the Matrix movie concept, and it was stolen by 
Warner Brothers and the Wachowskis and uh, and his dad in real life was Captain John Anderson. And that's his Scottish name, Anderson. And so anyway, <laughs> I won't I won't get into that. We're having him on the show in, in a week. But um, yeah, that how that whole movie played out was uh, he tried to avoid uh, being a murderer. Right. Because he was he was convicted on pre-murder. But everything that he did played into exactly him ending up in that position to murder someone. And it's, it sounds like you're yes. kind of saying Satan is God's playing Satan sure. that same way. Yeah. Sure. And also look at Neo in The Matrix, mm-hmm. um, who didn't follow the pattern. He wants to change the times, change the whole outcome by doing so, because uh, he's the one. And so that's what Antichrist will promise. Wow. Wow. Incredible. Wow, thanks so much, Gary. Uh, with that, I guess we will we'll wrap up for today, Gary. I appreciate so much your time and your insight. And uh, Luke, we're sorry you couldn't be with us today, but uh, but duty called uh, at your uh, at your fire department. So uh, God bless you in that, and God bless you, Gary. Uh, thank you so much again for your time, and we look forward to, to doing this again. been listening to the days of noah podcast thanks again for tuning in again this week as always please share this episode with your family with your friends and give us that five-star review on your favorite podcast platform if you'd like to further support our show please click the support link at the bottom of the description and choose a support level as low as 99 cents per month If you'd like to reach out to us with any questions or comments or suggestions for the show, feel free to send us an email at thedaysofnoahpodcast at gmail.com. Take care. See you next week. God bless.